Hello, my name's Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And this week, we're talking about a giant in cinema. All roads lead to this man. Peter Bogdanovich. And I mean, like, all roads lead to him in the sense that, like... Who is he? You wh- may be asking well, yourself. Well, but, you know, you may be asking that if you're if you're a layman, in which case, stop listening to this podcast <laughs> right now. Uh, but, but, like, if you're interested in film, uh, and you become interested in figures like... Orson Welles, Roger Corman, John Ford, um, God knows who else. Howard Hawks. Howard Hawks, the the new American cinema of the 70s. People like Scorsese and Friedkin and Coppola. Uh, Eventually, all these roads lead to Peter Bogdanovich. I think I discovered Peter Bogdanovich for the first time, probably writing an introduction for This Is Orson Welles. That's where I discovered him, too. He co-wrote it with Welles, because it's a book composed principally of just an interview that he did with him over years. And it was... uh, posthumously published after Wells's death. Not Peter Bogdanovich's death. Yeah. Is he still kicking around? Well, technically. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> Peter Bogdanovich is a director that I don't know if I can say that I love. I appreciate him I like, as a filmmaker. Yeah, I like uh, Peter Bogdanovich is uh, definitely a, a pillar of American cinephilia. Um, Arguably one of the first like cinephiles who really made a name for himself as a cinephile before he became a director. And in the way that you think of somebody like Quentin Tarantino or Martin Scorsese as like the cinephile filmmaker, the filmmaker who makes movies that are about the movies he loved growing up um, and that are pastiches of those films. Th- this is <laughs> And will never escape this pastiche kind well, of yeah. that he's in. Yeah. So Peter Bogdanovich, as he likes to say in every interview that he's ever done, started with Roger Corman. Even before that, he started as a critic. He wrote um, little pamphlets and stuff. For, for the, the Museum of Modern Art, yeah. Mm. In fact, that's how Orson Welles came to know him, because uh, Bogdanovich wrote a short monograph about Welles, and Welles called him up, and uh, thus began a long friendship. And of course, growing up, Bogdanovich was a massive movie buff, loved watching movies in revival houses and on TV. He famously... Uh, I'm not sure why it's famously because it's not even that interesting, but he apparently like kept the Rolodex of file cards of every single movie he saw with his little like critical blurbs on all of them. And it was, it was like thousands and thousands of file cards by the time he stopped. And so after being a critic for so long, he ended up working for Roger Corman and he worked on a movie called the wild angels where he got beat up by a bunch of Hell's Angels. I'm saying all these stories with a lot of trepidation because if you listen to Peter Bogdanovich ever given an interview, you will hear all these stories over and over and over again. Yeah, I'm tired of it too. But, you know, for those of you uh, who may be laymen, uh, Roger Corman, of course, gave the Wait, start... Wait, they stopped listening if they're laymen. Right? Yeah, we told them to stop. Yeah, <laughs> no, Ro- you told them to stop. <laughs> yeah, I did, yeah. Uh, Roger Corman, of course, uh, the famous exploitation film producer who gave a start to Coppola, Scorsese, all of the greats from the 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, Which we did an episode of the Important Cinema Club on. Our least listened to episode ever. What the, what's the deal, guys? Why don't Go you listen like, to that episode. Why don't you like Roger Corman? So um, he ended up uh, making a deal with Roger Corman where Corman had shot this footage for a movie called The Terror. And it starred Boris Karloff, uh, Dick Miller, and Jack Nicholson. A young Jack Nicholson as a, like, Jack Nicholson is 22 years old and he plays, like, a uh, French commander of the army. And so this movie was an absolute mess. It had, like, three directors. It made no sense. And uh, Corman told Bogdanovich, listen, 
Like, you can make a movie as long as you use this high percentage of footage from the film. Well, essentially, the terror had already come out, Mm -hmm. and uh, Corman had Boris Karloff under contract for another two or three days, and he said, if you use 15 minutes of footage from the terror, 15 minutes of new Karloff footage, and we shoot another 40 minutes of other stuff, boom, we've got a new Boris Karloff movie. And at this point, Bogdanovich uh, had done some of the stuff uh, taking Russian science fiction imports that Corman had bought and redubbing and re-editing them with Francis Ford Coppola into new movies. But uh, this is not really where Peter Bogdanovich's heart lay. Uh, He was a devotee of the old Hollywood, the Hollywood of Howard Hawks, of John Ford, of other people like that. (laughs) The big, you know, the big meaty American directors. And so when Peter Bogdanovich watched Roger Corman's film The Terror, and he was trying to figure out what to do with the movie. He famously said to his wife, Polly Platt, who is really his partner in crime at this time, he said, what if we start the movie with Boris Karloff watching The Terror, turning to Roger Corman and saying, that's the worst movie I've ever seen. <laughs> and that's, um, and using that as like a launching pad, Peter Bogdanovich crafts this weird kind of dual movie where there's two stories running concurrently to each other. And one of them, Boris Karloff, playing basically a Boris Karloff-like figure. He plays a Byron Orlock, but <laughs> essentially he's Boris Karloff. And in fact, we see footage from Boris Karloff's old movies in this movie. And um, is a actor nearing the end of his life, kind of looking back on all the things he's done and wondering if it's worthwhile. Also accompanied on the storyline is Peter Bogdanovich playing Peter Bogdanovich. He plays a young director who uh, hired Boris Karloff for his last movie. But Boris Karloff wants out. He wants to retire because um, uh, he thinks that his style of horror is passe now and who cares and I'm, and I'm done with this. The other parallel plot is a young all-American boy, uh, I guess in his 20s, who one day decides, I'm going to shoot up my family. Mm-hmm. And then he does that and he likes it and he thinks, well, I'm just going to go shoot up random people as a sniper. And these two stories come to a head at Byron Orlock's last public appearance at a drive-in showing of The Terror where this young guy starts shooting everybody at the drive-in. Now, I don't know if we said the name of the movie, but it's called Target. Oh, did we not say that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, by this description that we've given, you may think this is like a pulpy, fun kind of picture, an exploitation kind of pop boiler that were popping up in the 70s and stuff like that. But the way that Peter Bogdanovich treats the story of the sniper is almost Michael Haneke in its kind of coldness. There's no music in this film. Did mm-hmm. you notice that? Yes. And it's it's an interesting contrast, the fact that there's this cold clinical, as you said, Michael Haneke-like a story of the sniper and it's contrasted to the Boris Karloff scenes which are kind of played for light comedy almost uh you know Boris Karloff is this kind of uh old wise sort of wisecracking seen it all guy um and he's surrounded by sort of bumbling people like Peter Bogdanovich who are trying to you know begging him to make one last movie um I know that there were critics at the time who thought that it was an odd juxtaposition that didn't work but I don't know watching it this time I thought it was I thought it was kind of amazing how well it did work, given that it doesn't fit together. For being such a cinephile, Peter Bogdanovich has gone on record saying that he doesn't like horror films. And I think that the way that he kind of treats the real-life horror in uh, Target 
it really shows that he doesn't have an affinity for like the old Universal Monster movies, which you, you would assume that he would love. Mm-hmm. And so he treats it like there's this long sequence of the sniper just getting on a water tower and just shooting people on the highway that is chilling. Yeah, it's terrifying. And it's it's actually I mean, uh, I hate to say the old cliche that it's only got it's it's a very prescient film, <laughs> yep. but I mean, it is a very prescient film at the time. I think that scene might've uh, reminded people of like the JFK assassination. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, this movie was released just around the time of the Bobby Kennedy assassination. But I mean, since then there have just been so many mass shootings. Um, and it actually kind of reminded me a little bit of video games too. Yeah. Enough. Like, but anybody who's played uh, video games, I think can identify with the thrill of just sort of like coldly killing random people in a game. And something that the movie never does is really give this sniper any backstory or any reason for what he's doing. It's just, he goes home, one day he picks up the gun, and he shoots his family. There's a hint that he was a Vietnam veteran, but that's only hinted at and never dealt on the nose in the movie. And there's no real suggestion that it's like post-traumatic stress disorder or anything. Um, the, the The main thing the movie is about is the idea that Boris Karloff's old kind of horror is basically passe. Uh, and that, you know, with Vietnam going on and with so many assassinations right now, there's a new, um, much, much grislier and much more horrible kind of horror. Um, I I feel like the point the movie's making, again, it's only become more potent with Mm -hmm. the passage of time, because since then we've seen that the sort of horror movie that dominated in the 70s was stuff like Last House on the Left, or, I don't know, even something like Halloween is much more... It, like, Halloween, I would classify as kind of almost like a cold, indirect violence. Like, the killer in Halloween is basically the killer in Targets, right? Mm-hmm. Where he's just, like, evil personified. Mm-hmm. But but something like Last House on the Left or The Hills Have Eyes, it's something that's a little bit more... Uh, you can imagine it happening to you. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I think the whole visceral charge of the slasher genre is that you can kind of project yourself onto it and imagine it happening to you. Whereas nobody imagines that, like, Frankenstein is going to happen to them. No, and that's why people love the idea of the Frankenstein character, the creature from the Black Lagoon, mm-hmm. and people become monster fans. Like, no one is going around, <laughs> you know, I'm going to dress up as the character from Targets from Peter Bogdanovich's film. <laughs> because he is anonymous. Yeah. He is, like, the everyman. And like you said, it could happen to anybody also boris karloff is amazing in this oh, film i love boris karloff yeah and it's really sad what happened near the end of his career where he got stuck in a bunch of like filipino or mexican well, pictures basically this is one of his last movies you can see that he looks pretty bad in the film he's walking with a cane and and he looks about 10 years older than he is but he brings a lot of you know just natural uh, gravitas and charisma to it um and, and a real kind of charming sense of humor there's an amazing scene where he um recites this ghost story mm-hmm. and the camera just slowly pans in on him while he's reciting the ghost story and it's like awe-inspiring um but yeah people like to think of targets as his last movie even though shortly after he went to mexico and made four shitty movies and <laughs> so then died yeah, yeah that are apparently the worst things he's ever done so after targets peter bogdanovich i don't know if he was on a high necessarily but it had been pretty critically well received paramount picked it up um And yeah, he was definitely seen as a director to watch. So he made a film called The Last Picture Show, which was a blockbuster. I think it goes without saying. It's I think it's a great film. It's a great movie. Uh, It's arguably the greatest movie that Peter Bogdanovich ever made. Maybe, but you know, targets. 
Yeah, I actually think Target is my favorite Peter Bogdanovich film. It's mine too, and I think that's becoming an increasingly mainstream position, actually. Oh, huh, really? Well, I think so. I mean, I think I'm was, sure he'd fucking hate to hear that. I think there was a time ten years ago or twenty years ago, and people would have thought that's absurd. But I think Targets is not only his best movie, but I think it's possibly the best movie to ever come out of like the Roger Corman system. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to, I, I'm trying to think of anything that's a close competition to it, really. Um, that corman didn't direct um nothing really comes to mind I mean, death race 2000 Come yeah on. but those are still working in that kind of exploitation genre yeah and the and the movies that like scorsese or coppola made for corman are basically just interesting curiosities mm-hmm. yeah they're not genuinely great movies like yeah. something like targets um i'm sure you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com i haven't seen carnosaur three so i don't know <laughs> And Carnistore, you need to see theatrically to really get the impact of the picture. Um, So he made Last Picture Show, nominated for a slew of Academy Awards, a one-two. I believe it was Best Actress or Best Supporting Actress. And then he made, surprisingly, a number of hits. But at the same time, Peter Bogdanovich also became a star director. So, I mean, I guess one of the things that's really interesting about Peter Bogdanovich is the fact that, like, he had these three mega blockbusters... Uh, Last Picture Show, What's Up Doc, and Paper Moon. Uh, he was the Quentin Tarantino of his day. Yeah. He, uh, he was the Orson Welles of his day in terms of somebody who just explodes onto the scene and is hugely famous. And then, like, his fall was as precipitous as any anybody's fall. Now, ever. we should talk about, for people that don't know his biography, that you mentioned Polly Platt, who was his kind of collaborator. Supposedly, she was, like, hand-in-hand with him. Some people who worked on Last Picture Show said that she basically kind of co-directed the movie, that he would keep her by his side, making sure that while she was officially credited as a production designer, she was kind of his sounding board mm-hmm. for making decisions. She actually brought him the book, said mm-hmm. you should make this movie, and so on and so and, forth. And she was his wife, uh, and of course was a huge movie buff along with him. But okay, let's just say, uh, as, a, as a thought experiment... Let's say that you're this kind of nerdy guy who has spent, you know, 25, 30 years just going to screenings at the Museum of Modern Art and, uh, you know, uh, making your little fanzines and trying to get into the film business and just being Loving a Loving wife you have two children you, with. You got a stupid little ascot. Okay. <laughs> um, this stupid ascot will need to be talked about in lengths later in the okay. episode. Okay. So, and then let's say you suddenly become famous and you get the opportunity to have sex with Sybil Shepherd. Well, you know, nope. You know, he's not he's he's not made of stone. <laughs> but this was like a devil's bargain because his two best movies, he worked hand in hand with Polly Platt. Okay, imagine you're Polly Platt and you've you've been going to this asshole to the Museum of Modern Art all this time watching these Howard Hawks movies. And then all of a sudden, oh, uh, hey, I'm fucking Civil Shepherd now. And you stick around with him for his next two movies after that. Oh, I didn't know she she worked on the other two. Yeah, as well. yeah, she did. Uh, so she worked on What's Up Doc, which is like yeah. a bringing up baby style pastiche. Yeah, and then she worked on Paper Moon as well, which that literally encompasses all his good movies. Yeah, she sticks around with them for the next two movies while he her ex husband is off, you know, having sex with Civil Shepherd, um, and then you know. She then stops working with him and then watches as his career just falls apart from hubris and arrogance. And so Peter Bogdanovich, like, hosted The Tonight Show. Yeah. At some point. He was on the cover of People magazine. He and Sybil Shepard were on the cover of People magazine. That's how famous this guy was. Uh, <laughs> and 
he became very devoted to Sybil Shepherd, and basically she was the centerpiece of his other movies. I mean, I guess somebody uh, less generous could call her his Susan Alexander Kane. Uh, but I like her. I, I think I think she's very good. I, I just watched Daisy Miller, and I thought she was surprisingly good in it. So Daisy, I, I just heard like all my life that she was so terrible in Daisy Miller. I thought she was really good. Yeah, Daisy Miller is a fine movie. I don't. You know what? I don't think she's a bad actress. She's great in Taxi Driver. You mm-hmm. know. And Daisy Miller is an interesting movie because it was supposed to be uh, directed by Orson Welles. So we uh, touched briefly that Peter Bogdanovich was close to Orson Welles, but we should clarify that, like, Orson Welles slept in Peter Bogdanovich's house for a long time, to the point that Sybil Shepherd actually complained that Orson Welles smelled <laughs> and didn't clean up after himself. Yeah. Um, and uh, there was clearly, uh, it became a fraught relationship, because imagine if you're Orson Welles and this little kid comes up and is worshipping you, and then all of a sudden becomes monumentally more successful than you. And Peter Bogdanovich actually played that role in Orson Welles' uncompleted film. The uh, Other Side of the Wind. Yeah. So um, Daisy Miller flopped at the box office. Yes. and it, th- But then he followed it up with... Oh. with uh, the, the other movie, me and Will sat down and like watched for this podcast. So I've been very eager to see this movie because um, it, it's called At Long Last Love. And it's a really kind of notorious Hollywood flop. The movie that basically ended Peter Bogdanovich for all intents and purposes, although mm-hmm. he made another 15 movies after that. Um, it was in a book called The 50 Worst Films of All Time. Do you remember that book? Harry and Michael Medved wrote it. I, I guess it's kind of a forgotten book. Um, but it, it's a lavish musical uh, with the songs of Cole Porter done in the style of like an old Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers uh, movie starring Burt Reynolds, Sybil Shepard, Madeline Kahn, and uh, the great Latin lover, the film's big discovery, Aduilo Del Porte. I, I don't know if I, I said his name right. Who is one of the most charmless people I've ever seen in my life. So it's these four rich lovers. Some of them are poor. Some of them are less rich. Who kind of dance around each other for two hours. There's no story. So Burt Reynolds is with Madeline Kahn. He's trying to learn how to sing. Um... Burt Reynolds is with Madeline Kahn, right? I forgot who's with who already. <laughs> they keep switching it around. So two of them are with two of them, and then and then they fall in love with the others. And basically, uh, I, I mean, we don't see them all fuck at the end, but it might as well be like a story about polyamory. But basically, they're just some rich assholes who... There's a scene... Um, yeah, and they dance a lot. There's a scene early in the movie where um, Burt Reynolds is riding in his, in his car, and his chauffeur is in the front seat, and Burt Reynolds says... Um, what time is it, Rodney? It's six, sir. Hmm, six. I'm sick of six. Why isn't it seven? Well, uh, five comes immediately before six, uh... and seven comes after six. And and this is like if P.G. Wodehouse were, like, hitting the head with a brick, he might come <laughs> up with this this sparkling repartee. I remember a big deal was made out of the fact that um, they sang the songs live on set. And it was apparently the first time in like 40 years that anybody had done this in a movie. And what a terrible idea. Well, uh, yeah, these people can't fucking sing. <laughs> like, Burt Reynolds cannot carry a tune. He should have really done the, like, Rex Harrison, like... Yeah. Um, just... Talk singing. Exactly. But no, he actually tries to sing. And, of course, they try to dance, and it's, you know, not much better. I mean... <laughs> It's two hours long. It's two hours long, and like I've hardly ever seen a movie where less happens in it. And these, there's so many songs too. Too like many. Never-ending singing. You know what? I've never really given Cole Porter much thought before I saw this movie, but I had plenty of time to think about him during it. 
Cole Porter, I don't think he's for me. You know, yeah, I don't think he's his, for me his either. His twee little songs, you're the top, you're the, you're the smile on the Mona Lisa, or whatever the stupid and lyrics are. And because there's no, like, drama or plot going on, it's basically, like, sitting at karaoke, watching people that can't sing just sing songs for yeah impossible lengths of time. And, you know, uh, the Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers movies, um, whenever they're not dancing, I just want to... Th- I just hate them. Like all that, all that, uh, you know, comedy of manners, door slamming shit between them. Uh, I think it's just deadly dull, but the dancing is great. So imagine if it was, if it was the absolute worst Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movie and didn't even have any good dancing. And imagine a Kung Fu film, like one of those comedy <laughs> Kung Fu films where the fighting was just so lame, but they did it all the time. I thought it was uh, great, though, that we decided to dig up this forgotten relic just to bury it again. <laughs> you know what? I actually thought that I might like this movie. I was really hoping that I like it. I'm like, I love musicals. I like Burt Reynolds. Yeah, because this is another one of those movies that when it came out, uh, the knives were just out for Peter Bogdanovich. Yeah. Because he had become such an arrogant asshole. Uh, like, I've seen a clip of him being interviewed at the time where they were like, uh, the last picture show, uh, it seems to show some influence of John Ford. Would you say that's true? It, it, does it feel like a John Ford picture and Bogdanovich? He goes, well, I like to think it's a Peter Bogdanovich picture. <laughs> so, yeah, like, people were ready to bury him. He's been said that, like, people didn't like to see someone so handsome and successful have such a <laughs> handsome, uh, beautiful um, girlfriend. Yeah, clearly. Um, I mean, uh, he, from what I understand, it was just basically a two or three year long I'm fucking Sybil Shepherd campaign that he did in the press. Well, me and uh, Will just discovered today that from uh, What's Up Doc onward, all the trailers for the movies are like, look at Peter Bogdanovich. There's a, a shot in the trailer for What's Up Doc where Peter Bogdanovich is like lying on the piano singing to Ryan O'Neal. And then it cuts to Barbara Streisand on the piano singing to Ryan O'Neal. Um, and that's, that's weird, right? (laughs) Is this making audiences want to go see this movie to see like Peter Bogdanovich be like, I'm hanging out here with my friend Ryan O'Neal and Barb's over here. Um, so yeah, after that, it was just a long, slow descent for Peter Bogdanovich. Even though that Roger Corman kind of gave his career a boost by giving him a chance to direct the movie St. Jack. That's true. After At Long Last Love and after Nickelodeon, another Burt Reynolds vehicle flopped, uh, Peter Bogdanovich went back to Roger Corman, uh, tail between his legs, and made St. Jack, which is apparently good. It's a very good movie. I've never yeah. seen it. And then he... Um, and then made... it all went to shit. <laughs> so I'm not 100% clear on what happened between Civil Shepherd and Peter Bogdanovich. I don't care. Civil <laughs> but... Shepherd is in Peter Bogdanovich's newest movie. Oh, is she? So I guess they're friends. Wait, does he have a new movie coming uh, out? She's Funny That Way from two years ago. Okay. And no, they've always been friends, uh-huh. um, even afterwards. But that uh, relationship is documented in a Ryan O'Neill, uh, Sharon Stone movie called Irreconcilable Differences. <laughs> and after that, Peter Bogdanovich was kind of lost in the world, I guess. So he fell in love with Dorothy Stratton, the... Uh, playboy uh model and actress um who you know as if you've seen the film star 80 you'll know was was brutally murdered by her ex-boyfriend while peter bogdanovich was dating her and peter bogdanovich had just shot a movie in which she acted called they all laughed which also had uh, i think uh, john ritter and audrey hepburn and was ben gazera and yes it? he was yeah. um and uh, nobody wanted to distribute this film, so Peter Bogdanovich, basically as a tribute to his uh, deceased girlfriend, uh, self-distributed it 
and paid for it and for the rest it, of his life. And yeah, yeah, and he never recovered financially after that. It's really a sad story. Have you seen They All Laughed? Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, I think it's probably the um, purest form of this kind of bedroom farce. Peter Bogdanovich seems to really like. It's like slamming doors, people running into each other, a little bit of quick patter dialogue, and all that like Howard Hawks stuff of like. Uh, Nebushi guys in big glasses and like fast talking dames. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not it's not my kind of film. Yeah, oh, I actually really enjoy it. Yeah, um, it's cute. Th- Quentin Tarantino put they all laughed on his sight and sound list of the best movies of all time. The thing about Peter Bogdanovich is that he doesn't seem to like drama that much. He seems to just like hanging out with these characters as they do their thing for 120 minutes. Yeah, which can get deadly dull mm-hmm. very quickly. The 80s are a sad decade for Peter Bogdanovich. Rob Lowe and Colleen Camp in Illegally Yours, (laughs) a film that I don't remember his name, but I read a book about an assistant director um, and all the adventures he had making movies. And he worked on Illegally Yours, and Peter Bogdanovich would supposedly get a PA to hold the script and to turn the pages for him as they were shooting. Bogdanovich was also fired like three weeks into shooting uh, Richard Pryor... uh, gene wilder movie i think it was i think it was the last one forever you huh yeah he he was fired from it uh like well into production which i don't know the story behind that but it's weird he had a shot of a comeback in the mid 80s when he directed mask with share mm-hmm. uh which was and eric stoltz and eric stoltz which was a significant box office hit but he actually tried to stu- sue the studio oh because he was so angry because the studio didn't want to have an all bruce springsteen soundtrack and he did um so when you sue the studio, they're not going to give you any more gigs based on that. Yeah. And then and I think his last film as a director for a really long time was The Thing Called Love in the early 90s, which is somewhat notable for being uh, River Phoenix's last film. He also made um, a movie called Texasville, which is a sequel to The Last Picture Show, which I bring up not because it's a good movie, because it's not. But Polly uh, Platt and Sybil Shepard got together and made him do it. There is actually a really good documentary about the making of Texasville by George Hickenlooper, who did Hearts of Darkness. And it's called uh, Picture This. Well worth seeking out. Um, it, it shows a much more humble Peter Bogdanovich. I mean, you, once you can only fall so far, right? And basically you see this whole, the whole cast and crew reunited and you get the sense that it's like this real like high school reunion vibe. And there are all these kind of like old animosities and old crushes that people had. I mean, it's like, we shouldn't like lighten the point if you haven't gotten yet that the death of Dorsey Stratton like destroyed Peter Bogdanovich to the point that he wrote a book called oh. The Killing of a Unicorn. I And yeah, um, it's it's really sad. Uh, I think The Killing of a, Unicor- of a Unicorn was basically greeted with um, polite embarrassment when it came out. Uh, possibly it's a good book. I don't know. I heard... Um, Erd Bogdanovich on Mark Maron's podcast talking about it very proudly. Hmm. So, you know, maybe it's good. And since then, Bogdanovich has kind of floundered as a director, but flourished as an actor. That's right. He was on The Sopranos. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was in many other films. He was in Infamous, that Truman Capote movie that wasn't Capote. Because the thing about uh, Peter Bogdanovich is he has a very distinct persona, especially as an old man. Mm-hmm. And um, he's directed every now and then. He kind of pops back up and he directs did a, a forgettable movie. He did a ton of made-for-TV movies in the 90s. Mm-hmm. He did A Saintly Switch, starring David Alan Greer. He did To Sir With Love 2, starring Sidney Poitier. I mean, honestly, like, can you imagine if, like, Martin Scorsese had all of a sudden... <laughs> 
made a Disney Channel movie with David Alan Greer. It's it's insane. Uh, and, you know, every now and then he gets a chance. He made The Cat's Meow with Kirsten Dunst. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about The Cat's Meow. This is was his big comeback movie from, I think, the early 2000s. Which he was angry again that he couldn't shoot in black and white. But I kind of like this movie. I haven't seen it in a while, but it was a story of the famous apocryphal story that uh, Thomas Ince, the cowboy star from the silent era, didn't die of food poisoning or whatever it is that he was supposed to have died of. He was on William Randolph Hearst's yacht when he died. And the story goes that William Randolph Hearst meant to shoot Charlie Chaplin in the, in the back because he was having an affair with Marion Davies, but he mistook Thomas Ince for Charlie Chaplin and shot Thomas Ince. I think you really have a soft spot for this because it, it it's you know gets that Chaplin itch. Eddie Izzard playing Charlie. Chaplin. I actually think Eddie Izzard is pretty amazing in the film. I, given that he doesn't look at all like Chaplin, <laughs> I think he really captures uh, kind of the caddish side of Chaplin. And, and I think uh, uh, the guy who plays William Randolph Hearst, the guy from Gilmore Girls. Oh yeah, he's really good. He's in that great. Too. Yeah. Um, it's no, um, what is that Liv Schreiber movie about the making of Citizen Kane? <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. So this movie, another flop. Mm-hmm. I think it cost something like $10 million. It made like $2 million at the box office. Too bad. Even though it do- did touch the heart of many, because I know my girlfriend, Emily, had a copy of The Cat's Meow on her shelf. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, you big uh, Peter Bogdanovich fan? She's like, nah, Kirsten Dunst stars in it. That's why I have it. <laughs> um, and then he just kind of disappeared again until... Uh, he made a movie two years ago called She's Funny That Way. Yeah. Have you seen this one? Yes, I did. I watched it today because yeah. you're like, it's on Netflix. And I'm like, huh, I watched the first 20 minutes. I guess I'll watch the rest. Wow. That's that's dark. I can't believe you made it all the way through. But this when movie... I said when I told you it was on Netflix, I was just like, you know, he's not actually going to watch this. <laughs> so this movie stars a murderer's row of comedic actors. Jennifer Aniston, Will Forte, Owen Wilson, the... For three years in every movie ever, Imogen Poots. Yeah. Um, Reese Ifans. Uh, Michael Shannon in a in a bit part. <laughs> yes. And uh, the people's favorite, my favorite actor, Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> Appearing, spouting dialogue that um, seems to have been written by someone who just heard Quentin Tarantino talking. It is one of the most cringe-inducing 60 seconds I've ever seen in a movie where... Uh, okay, I'm going to spoil She's Funny That Way for you. It, he he gets together with the leading lady at the end of the movie, and they're going off to see movies together. And he goes, oh, we better hurry up. There's a there's a Sonny Chiba triple feature at the New Beverly. And then we're going to see Rio Bravo. <laughs> um, but what, what's the movie about? So it's about this... Uh, is he a screenwriter played by Owen Wilson? He's basically Owen Wilson reprising his Midnight in Paris role for all intents and purposes. <laughs> Who is likes to call up call girls, have sex with them, and then give him $30,000 to start a new life. He's also married. Yeah, and we're just supposed to like like him for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the, the newest call girl that he gave thirty grand ends up being the woman that um, is trying out for his new play. And uh-oh, it looks like she got the role. Sh- shenanigans ensue. Um, there's a, it, the movie feels a lot like a late period Woody Allen movie in its uh, weird gender politics and its ossified style. Um, it's it's a highly watchable film. But, uh, it's fine. But, but It's uh, like, I hate all these characters. I hate the characters. Um, it, it's a movie, uh, Wes Anderson and Noah Baumbach produced it. And mm-hmm. of course, Quentin Tarantino has a cameo in it. So it definitely feels kind of like, you know, taking going to the nursing home and taking grandpa out <laughs> for a little wheel around outside. 
Uh, I mean, that late period Woody Allen is so perfect of like what it feels like. Yeah, like, you're, like, it's a bit embarrassing watching all of these you know youngish actors like Imogene Poots trying to do the Howard Hawks thing. It feels so like many generations removed. Dusted off an old script. They're like. I mean, Jennifer Aniston plays, like, an angry psychiatrist yeah. who's going to reveal all the secrets of her clients. Like, if What's Up, Doc is sort of a photocopy of a Howard Hawks movie, this feels like the third or fourth generation <laughs> dupe of What's Up, Doc. Yeah, it's, like, faded, and you're not quite sure. It doesn't feel right anymore. Uh, at the same time, I would love it if Bogdanovich would keep making movies. Yeah, I would love... I would just, I- just for his sake, honestly. <laughs> But really, uh, you don't want to just wheel him over to the setting sun, like wrap a blanket around him and just let him go off and, and say, what, what was it like knowing Orson Welles? Well, okay. well. So we didn't talk about this. Peter Bogdanovich, because he's not directing movies that much, he has become kind of a public figure that goes around, does introductions for like uh, John Ford's The Searchers or The Magnificent Ambersons. I saw him introduce The Searchers here in Toronto at the Tiff Bell Lightbox. And the thing about Peter Bogdanovich in this day and age is he has completely calcified. Mm-hmm. Like, he is what he was 20 years ago, and that will never change. Hey, can I tell you a story that I heard Peter Bogdanovich tell several times? <laughs> Are you going to do it in Peter Bogdanovich's voice? Yes, I will. Go. So I was with John Ford one time, and I was about to get John Wayne a birthday present. And I said to John Ford, I'm going to go out and get Duke a book. And John Ford goes, eh? I'm going to go out and get Duke a book. Eh? I said, I'm going to go out and get Duke a book. Duke's already got a book. Ugh. Good stuff. Th- that story's so dusty, I've even heard you <laughs> say it. I love that story. <laughs> um, I also saw uh, at that same event, somebody asked uh, Peter Bogdanovich what he thought of movies today. And Bogdanovich went, well, of course, it's no secret that movies are in the shitter. Uh, it's all movies like Iron Man and... <laughs> Spider-Man, all these movies with man in the title. And then somebody asked, well, are there any movies that you like? And he said, um, well, um, um, I, uh, Wes Anderson is, is very good. And, um, I like Noah Baumbach. The and, two people that produced, uh, and, she's uh, funny that way. And, um, Quentin Tarantino is very talented, but his films are too violent for me. I, I haven't I haven't seen anything that's coming out of Asia. I've heard good things. I look at Peter Bogdanovich and feel a deep fear of like, is that my future? Did you read uh, that sad editorial that he wrote right after the Aurora movie theater shooting where he basically disowned targets? Yes. I, I'm sorry to say. And it goes off on a weird tangent about superhero movies, which is totally irrelevant to the discussion, I think. Uh, well, it's like, you know, Grandpa, like, having a monologue, right? And he's not really cute into anything going on. Well, he actually says at one point, I'm in the minority on this, but I don't care for superhero pictures. They're just not my cup of tea. People today don't make pictures like How Green Was My Valley <laughs> or even From Here to Eternity anymore. Let me stop you, Peter. Those people are making those movies. I'm just not seeing them. <laughs> Wait, you're playing Peter Bogdanovich now? I have a lot of questions. What was it like when you met Orson Welles for the first time? Well, we were having dinner one time, and and I felt so open with Orson that I even felt I had the right to say, the only picture of yours I don't really like is the trial. And he said, I don't like it either. So for years, I would often say, the picture of yours I don't like is the trial. Until one day he said, would you please stop saying that? <laughs> I actually like the trial very much. I was hoping that you were going to do like an Orson Welles imitation. I can't do Peter Bogdanovich doing Orson Welles. (laughs) 
But I can do him doing uh, Cary Grant. Because it's the thing about a Peter Bogdanovich is that, like, he considers himself a rich little-like figure. Do you think he still does, like, voices? I know that he does voices. <laughs> he did it on the Marin podcast. Cary Grant was talking to me and he said, oh, well, I'm, I'm uh, Cary Grant. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we don't, I don't want to like beat up on him too much. Yeah. Beat Cause up I actually, I, I, I love like the guy. Him. Yeah. And when I see a book with an introduction by Peter Bogdanovich, I'm like, Oh yeah. Like I would say like Peter Bogdanovich, aside from, um, his three big hits and targets, uh, which I, which I like, I don't like what's up doc that much, but, um, uh, paper moon is You just great. don't like comedy, right? Will? Uh, yeah. I'm, yeah. It's like the world is too serious. I say, <laughs> but yeah, paper moon is great. Last picture show is great. Targets is great. And there are some others that he made that are, that are okay. Yeah. Um, but his real claim to fame, I think, is as a film historian, mm-hmm. not so much as a film critic. I think his film criticism is a little bit kind of, oh, weren't the golden age golden? But if you read books like Who the Hell Made It, which is a bunch of interviews with filmmakers that he did. Well, it's amazing because like when he was in his heyday in the 60s and 70s, he would just call up great Hollywood directors. Um, there's a filmmaker named Edgar G. Elmer who is known as the best director of like low poverty budget, row pictures. yeah low budget exploitation films and he Edgar G Elmer was starting to get some attention by the French critics and Bogdanovich was apparently the only buddy, the only person who ever thought to just call up Edgar G Elmer and, and interview him and Edgar G Elmer is full of shit. Well, he told basically mostly lies, but that... <laughs> he invented the moving camera. <laughs> he, um... I co-directed with F.W. Murnau. <laughs> exactly. But that one interview is basically one of the major biographical sources for Edgar G. Elmer today. Or um, Bogdanovich did a book of interviews with John Ford. Oh, yeah. He's the one. He um, made a documentary called Directed by John Ford. And what you find out in the interview that Bogdanovich did is that John Ford does not like to give interviews. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like that documentary has a scene of Ford in Monument Valley, <laughs> just sitting there like a small figure with like this beautiful landscape and, behind him. And Bogdanovich is saying, uh, "Mr. Ford, would you say that your view of the West had grown uh, steadily more disillusioned as your career went on?" And and John Ford looks disgusted. He goes, "Cut." <laughs> <laughs> but the book the book that he did with John Ford is quite interesting reading because basically for the whole first half of John Ford's career. Um, Ford would just do whatever he was able to do, just whatever the studio would assign him. So every every film is just a variation of, yeah, the studio gave me this script, and I and I thought it wasn't very good. I but did I shot it. I did what I could with it. <laughs> and of course, this is Orson Welles. His book of interviews with Welles, I think, is just one of the very best film books ever. It's so like dense and interesting and there's facts and fictions and they all mingle together in a way that you really don't see in kind of interview books because it's obvious that Peter Bogdanovich and Orson Welles had a real repartee and that Welles could say stuff that he wouldn't say to other people. If you want to see an example of this book done poorly, you just have to check out... um, My my Lunches with Orson, was it called? Yeah, by Henry Jaglum, who... If we're talking about, like, forgotten kind of new wave figures... We should do an episode on Henry Jaglum. (laughs) Henry Jaglum is one of the most, like, weirdest kind of... Who is he? Does anybody care about his movies? Also a friend of Orson Welles. Also made kind of pastiche pictures a little bit. Basically, Henry Jaglum's movies are just, um... I mean, they're they're really fucking bad. They're... (laughs) Even though Roger Ebert's 
written about how when he was a con, he could not get into a hangry Jaglom screening because they were so packed. Well, that's changed. I mean, Jaglom was kind of, he made a movie in the 70s called A Safe Place that was by the same people who produced like Easy Rider and Five Easy Pieces. And The Last Picture Show. And The Last Picture Show. And Orson Welles was in it. And basically after Welles and Bogdanovich had their falling out, uh, Henry Jaglom became... Uh, Wells's launching partner and occasional producing partner, although they never produced anything. Uh, and while they were having lunch, uh, Jaglom would apparently secretly record their conversations. Oh my God. J- Jaglom claims that he had permission to do it. That is insane. That is not true. Yeah. Um, but Jaglom makes these movies every year or two. There's a new Jaglom movie where it's just a bunch of assholes sitting around talking um, while the camera is static. Imagine like, <laughs> Imagine if, like, my dinner with Andre was incredibly boring. <laughs> that would hateful. be a Henry Jaglom. Yeah. So that's one thing that Peter Bogdanovich has over Henry Jaglom, is that he's better than him. Yeah. Okay. I've interviewed Henry Jaglom once. Uh, he's a great guy to talk about Orson Welles with. Oh, really? Yeah. So let's talk about Peter Bogdanovich's stupid ascot. So if you don't know what an ascot is, it's basically a bandana you wear around your neck. A neckerchief. Yeah. And it looks so dumb. And he has worn it for... 95% of his life, you will not find a photo of him with not wearing that thing. Yeah, Tom Wolfe has his uh, white suit, uh, Ernest has his vest, <laughs> and uh, Peter Bogdanovich has his neckerchief. I just want to reach out and, like, rip it off of him. Um, do you think his, like, head would topple off or something like that? Or do, do you think he has, like, scars he's hiding? I wonder. Do you think he wears it to sleep? <laughs> or in the shower? <laughs> he has to. Because what would happen if he woke up and he went outside and people saw him without his, uh... Like John Waters has his little mustache. People would be like, who is that person? Is that, is that, is, is that... <laughs> yeah, it's like Clark Kent. <laughs> yeah, or, you know, Peter Kaplowski, our good pal. Yeah, his with his hat, yeah. So I think that we should make this a universal... It's a plea. If you know Peter Bogdanovich, intervene. Please, just tell him, hey man, you don't need to wear that anymore. Yeah. Wouldn't it be nice to not have that around your neck all the time? Wouldn't it be nice to not be like sweating and... and He like takes it off and it's like boils and stuff like that that have formed from wearing it for too long. Uh, Do you think he wears the same one or does he like pick one every morning when he wakes up? Oh, I wonder. Do you remember that um, that Ernest film, Ernest Goes to Jail, where we see uh, Ernest looking through his closet and he has just rows and rows of that vest and and jeans? (laughs) That's probably what Peter Bogdanovich's closet looks like. Just row and row. It would be amazing amazing if someone said hey can you take that off it looks really dumb and he, there's like a moment of pause and he's like no one ever told me that before <laughs> or maybe he would go do you know who i am <laughs> no <laughs> all right so what are we doing next week will charles burnett this was a suggestion of yours yes i decided that you know we've been taking it pretty easy for a long time and we're gonna take it very easy in october so we should take something that's challenging and that personally i have not seen one of his movies i've seen killer of sheep I liked it. Um, I don't know anything about him. So, yeah, let's uh, let's explore. Mm-hmm. He, he's clearly a great director and uh, somebody who, for many years, couldn't get any financing for his films. And Killer of Sheep, for a long time, wasn't even released. Yeah, so definitely somebody who's come into prominence much more in the last 10 years and is apparently great. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be talking about him next week. And then in October is Shocktober. Yeah! I'm very excited. we got some special guests coming in. All horror movies, baby. Yep. People uh, that we know. <laughs> Exactly. People that have run famous publications. Yeah. Um, so get excited for that, I guess. Yeah. I don't know if we want to say anything because we'll probably change our mind at the last minute. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't want it to say anything. So go on iTunes. Review us. Skip this part if you've already heard it. Unless we tell a secret at the end. <laughs>
Yeah. Um, Justin and I are getting married. Oh my god, what a <laughs> twist. Um, I've been hired to direct um, They Now Pronounce You Chuck and Larry too. Ah, great film. We should do a Dugan episode. Dennis Dugan. <laughs> oh, and where can they write to us? They can write to us at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. Remember two episodes ago when we had letters? Ah. Oh. What a sweet time that was. Let's let's do it again. We are 40 episodes in at this point and we've received three letters. Let's let the silent majority are out there <laughs> and they just they just need to send us in a letter. Yeah. All right, so my name is Justin McClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. So the Toronto International Film Festival has come and gone. Good riddance. Yeah. I've heard enough about the fucking escalator. <laughs> But we actually saw some movies, which we kind of skipped talking about last episode, because who the fuck wants to listen to us talk about movies in, like, the main body of a podcast? Yeah. That they're probably not going to see for sometimes years, sometimes just weeks. And also, nobody even cares about TIFF. I mean, like, li- listen to this. But but let's talk about it anyway. Yeah, let's talk about TIFF. So what did you see that was really good? Uh, my favorite thing that I saw was probably L by Paul Verhoeven. Uh, I think it's... Uh, just a just a really good movie. I think it um it is is definitely kind of on the cutting edge of the way that people think about rape and the way that people uh, cope or react to rape uh, and abusive relationships in general. And it's got Isabel Huppert in it, who's uh, I can't really imagine anybody else playing that role. What was your the best thing you saw? Um, I saw every Midnight Madness movie this year, which is really funny. Wow, that's me, that's very rare. Yeah, after me saying, "Man, I can't handle Midnight Madness this year." Um, I saw I saw three Midnight Madness. I saw um, the Free Fire, which I didn't like. I saw Dog Eat Dog, which I thought was all right. And I saw Raw. And in fact, we were sitting next to one of the people who collapsed during the screening. At a certain point, Will taps me on the shoulder and goes, hey, I think your friend, something's wrong with him. (laughs) Or did you say like he's having a seizure? Yeah, I did. And I looked over and our friend, his his eyes were rolled up to the ceiling. His hands were like clutched in the claws. And we're like, I was like, holy shit. I wish I could claim that I was heroic here, but I don't know what to do when somebody has a seizure. (laughs) Well, first we tried to shake him awake (laughs) we poked at him a little bit (laughs) and we're like hey hey man wake up wake up and then we're like he's not waking up and then we were like "Uh, somebody go to the lobby yeah lobby because we were trapped in the middle of the row yeah so uh, thankfully our friend peter kaplowski was on the end and he just ran up and medics arrived within like 10 seconds but then this guy snapped out of it and was like and didn't realize he'd had a seizure and he's like hey what's going on like why is everybody staring at a seizure in the the lobby again there was nothing in the movie there was no strobe lighting or anything and it wasn't anything violent or anything that had him collapse but apparently later in the screening somebody else had a seizure and then uh, tomorrow morning as I'm reading my uh, issue of The Hollywood Reporter over breakfast. Uh, as um, big film people yeah, tend to do. Uh, not not true. I checked Twitter. Uh, apparently all of a sudden we were hearing about multiple people who collapsed during the screening of this scary horror film. And like photos of ambulances were showing up, which they did show up yeah. and took our friend to the... Um, hospital and then conspiracy theorists were like it didn't really happen yeah clearly it was staged and then other people were like oh no it's true people died by fright during the screening of this (laughs) film just like a william castle did you hear what happened is that they emailed the guy they thought was a movie's publicist who wasn't and he just replied yes it was staged well 
that's a that's a crack publicist right there <laughs> if, if he were um but no i mean we're here to confirm at least one of them was real and it was just a seizure guys yeah and so. it probably was not related to anything that was in the movie good movie though. i liked it very much yeah uh what else i liked uh into the inferno by herzog and i did not care for salt and fire by herzog um which you say was one of the worst herzog movies ever right to the point that it feels like a herzog parody um i saw uh, in wavelengths, I saw The Ornithologist, which I liked, and I saw a documentary about Jonas Mikas that I liked. Uh, mm. I saw The Handmaiden, which was pretty good. Yeah, the Park Wanchu... Uh, Park Wan... I can't say his name. Park Wanchu... Park Chan-wook. <laughs> I saw Age of Shadows, a new movie by um, the director of Good, the Bad, and the Weird, and it wasn't mm-hmm. that good. It was fine. It was three, mm-hmm. a, three stars out of five. I really want that guy to return to the madness that was like, I saw the devil and yeah. get the bad and the weird. And he really hasn't. Um, I enjoyed his Arnold Schwarzenegger film. The last stand. It's though. fine, but yeah. it feels really muted compared to his other stuff. I'd like to see him do- doing better stuff. Um, I really enjoyed headshot, which was an Indonesian uh, martial arts film. That was really just all killer. No filler. Like it wasn't like the raid two, which is two hours of slowness punctuated by intense Kung Fu sequences. Mm. It was just like right in your face. Um, action i also saw the much hyped tony erdman uh which i have to admit i was a bit indifferent towards well that's because everybody told you it was literally the best movie in the last decade like people were tweeting after the screening this is the best film that will be at tiff this year and i mean i don't know it's a little long (laughs) and i thought the the major comic set pieces really fell flat Um, and i don't know if i really bought the relationship so you didn't like anything about the movie well you know what i might see it again and like it a lot who knows you think were people laughing around you and you had your arms crossed and you were like i hate this movie uh, yeah, actually, like, I, and I don't, I don't know what to attribute that to. It's just I didn't, I didn't find it very funny. Uh, I saw my entire high school sinking into the sea, which was really fun, and that was an interesting experience because what happens to some of the screenings is they end up in the IMAX theater in the Scotiabank, which is downtown Toronto, and it's like a true IMAX screen. And they played this movie, which is kind of like an animated version of if Wes Anderson directed The Poseidon Adventure. Mm. So like Jason Schwartzman and stuff like that do voices. But it was basically animated by like three people blown up to this giant (laughs) screen. Yeah. Um, But other than that, what are the lessons we learned at TIFF this year? Uh, we learned uh, to stop tweeting. I mean, for God's sake, all of you stop tweeting. It Wait, was I just... saw some sardonic tweets coming your, from your way. Uh, it's di- except for me, right? It, it's different when I do it because I'm I'm good. I'm <laughs> I'm uh, I'm brilliant. I have some and escalator infallible. jokes I want to make. Oh God, 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 help me! Um, enough with the uh, celebrity name dropping. I could do without that. And also, uh, yeah, the the women in bikinis at the TIFF parties, it, it was a little weird. <laughs> okay, so for people that don't know, this recently, it didn't come out. No. Like, someone just wrote about it. Yeah. That um, my, my friend Allison wrote about it. Uh, yeah. The uh, TIFF opening party literally had women dancing in gi- giant, like, martini glasses. It, it felt like being in the red light district of Amsterdam. Um, and yeah. that is... Not- or they, they were, like, dancing in the windows at the, <laughs> at the main floor of the Bell Lightbox, like in Amsterdam. That is insane! How is no one like, hmm, this doesn't seem right to me. Like- well, especially considering that TIFF is supposed to be so woke, right? Like, all of the women in film panels. Um, oh, and also they showed Birth of a Nation this year. We're going out on a controversial note. I mean, that's not controversial, is it? These no, it's well actually sorry i should say he was acquitted in the court of law Uh, okay yes but it it was only the rape victim who said that he raped her oh and and also his friend that was convicted right which was overturned so he he allegedly raped her and then the other guy allegedly raped her immediately after but only one of them was guilty of raping her 
I, so hey, listen, if you can figure that out. I think the most exciting thing though that I saw at TIFF were the Cinematech screenings, which they do for free. Um, and no one attends. Well, listen, am I going to see Ryan Gosling at one of those? You're going to see Jonathan Demme at one of them, and they showed something wild in 35mm. You're going to see wow. a film that was never released in North America. The director, Sidney J. Fury, the movie was made in 1950, called uh, cool, A Cool Sound from Hell. Yeah. And it was its North American premiere. Yeah, it was probably never released because it's not very good, right? <laughs> no, it's solid. Yeah, yeah, It's because it couldn't find distribution. Listen, uh, Magnificent Ambersons was the opening <laughs> night film. No, not Ma- Magnificent Sound. Seven. What am I saying? <laughs> I'm like, oh, Magnificent Emerson. Magnificent yeah. Seven. They're giving people what they want. Do you think there's too many films at TIFF, Will? Yeah, there are too many movies that I don't like. <laughs> if they just if they just limited it to, to the movies that I want to see, then it would be much better. If they just contacted you and they were like, Will Sloan, this is a list of movies we're going to play this year. Can you pick which ones you'd like to see and which ones you don't want to see? Here's my, uh, here's my guide for whether or not it's a good movie. If Cameron Bailey and Piers Handling programmed it, but they don't stay around for the Q&A, that means it's probably not very good. 